James shows us a faith that works. You guys ready? Faith that works. James, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. We didn't quite finish up last week. Somebody came back from their sabbatical very long-winded. I don't know who it was, but he did. And so we had to do a part two. This is part two. And uh, so grab your sermon notes out. Jesus' little half-brother James is showing us what it means to be like Jesus, faith that works. And this is what our life will look like if we have had an encounter with Christ Jesus and are walking in vital union and communion with him. That's what James is trying to get across to us. It's not a lot of heavy theology. It's more very practical uh, living out our faith in everyday life, what that looks like. If you have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ Jesus as James had, this is what your life will look like. That's the point that he's trying to get across here. Now, quick warning here. We don't want to be preoccupied with trying to be like Jesus because what happens oftentimes when we do that, it turns into kind of a moralism and we want to be preoccupied with being with Jesus because the more you are with Jesus, the more you will become like Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so anytime you see that you're not like Jesus, it's because you need to be with Jesus. You need to spend a little bit more time maybe with Jesus so that he can transform your heart so you run back into his arms, experience his love so that you can be a different kind of person and you can be more like Jesus. Now, the very first topic that James deals with as we work through this book, verse by verse, is trials. Trials, hardship, suffering is the first topic James addresses. And as you remember last weekend, this is what we said, and this was kind of a little bit of a thesis statement. It's not what happens to you, but what happens in you that makes you either, what is it, bitter or better, that either breaks you or makes you. It's not what happens to you. It's not your circumstances. I'm not minimizing your circumstances. I know that there are people that are in our fellowship that have gone through horrible circumstances. But I'm telling you, your circumstances don't control you. They influence you, but they don't control you. What controls you more than anything is your character. It's not what happens to you, your circumstances. It's what happens in you, your character. And your character has to do with your perspective, your expectations your beliefs, and your values. And so, really, it's the circumstances that are revealing who you really are. And, and so, your character will either make you or break you. It, it, will, it will make you better, make you better in hard times or bitter, bitter in those hard times. And it's why you can have two people going through similar set of uh, difficult circumstances and one becomes bitter and the other becomes better. Todd, who was here last night with his family, he's on the worship team. Um, he's about ready to be shipped out here to this hurricane. Uh, in, uh, it's Hurricane Florence on the East Coast. And he typically goes to a lot of these catastrophic events. He's an insurance claims adjuster. Oh, boy. And I asked him last week, I said, so do you notice a difference between how people respond to their catastrophic events? He goes, oh, my goodness. Yeah, like night and day, how people respond. 
And, uh, and so we begin to talk a little bit about, you know, the difference between being sad and then having despair. And uh, it's normal to be sad when you lose a good thing, but when a good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just sad, you're in despair. You're hopeless. Does that make sense? So the tendency is that we take these very good things that God has given us and we tend to turn them into God things, into ultimate things, and then our emotional response to when those things are lost uh, is revealed to how much those things have a hold on our lives. And so we, we looked at uh, what is true about trials last week. We spent most of our time on that and perspective. So James gives us the kind of perspective that we need to have if we're going to be better rather than bitter in circumstances, if circumstances are going to make us rather than break us, is we need to have a certain perspective, biblical worldview. This is how you should see your, your circumstances. We'll zip through that pretty quickly. Uh, we're just going to do a summary of that because we spent a lot of time on that. If you didn't, if you were not here, I would encourage you to go online, listen to the message because that will talk... I talk more about that in that message. But what we're going to focus more on is what resources do we have for trials? So we need perspective. We need power. So God's grace gives us perspective, gives us power in difficulties so that difficulties can make us and not break us, make us better, not bitter. And so that's where we're headed. But before we uh, read our text and unpack these notes, would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we study his word. Father God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence. Your glorious son, our savior Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have suffering and hardship, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those are the words from our savior to us. And so we pray now through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, may we be with Jesus as we study his words so that we can be more like Jesus as he gives us the peace and the power to overcome the trials and the suffering and the hardship in this life for our joy in his glory, in his beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let me read through the text here. You can follow along if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> And uh, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles, or if it's an electronic device, that's fine too, but just follow along and underline and highlight things in there that stand out to you, what God's speaking to you. James chapter 1, verse 1, <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <clears throat> if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man 
who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend. And uh, so let's take a look at this. Look at your notes here. And let's do a summary of what we talked about last week, what is true about trials perspective so that trials will make us, not break us. We need to have a biblical perspective. Now, keep in mind, everybody look up here. You got to get this. It's not the events of life. It's not the events of life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. I know we like to blame the the pain in the neck people that are around us or maybe our own family members or whatever, whatever it might be, we like to blame, we do a lot of blame shifting in our culture today. Well, I am the way I am. I feel the way I feel because look what this person did to me. Well, actually, it's not the events of life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's your evaluation. It's your evaluation of those events. It's what you're saying to yourself. It's your beliefs about those events. It's your values in the midst of those events. What's most important to you? that determines how you feel and how you will behave in response. That's why our perspective is critical, that we have a biblical worldview as we face the hardships of life. And that's why this was meant to be a point last week. I made it a point this week, is that trials can be met with authentic joy. Can be met with authentic joy. Notice what he says, count, count it all joy. Uh, NIV says pure joy. This is a command. And the word count is, uh, is an accounting term. He's, say, he's saying, hey, go through the list and begin to add up. Yeah, you have a lot of deficits, but oh my goodness, the assets that you have in Christ are much more. They add up much more than the deficits that you're experiencing in your life. That's what he's saying. And, and he's saying, if you think out the implications of what you have in Christ Jesus and all that he's provided for you, it will lead you to joy. Now, let me just give you a quick warning here. Don't say this to someone that's in the midst of hardship and difficulty, okay? There's somebody just lost a loved one and you walk up, well, count it all joy, brother or sister. Don't do that. If you do that to me, I will. (laughs) I will get you in a headlock and go, I'll give you a noogie. Actually, probably smack you, okay? I'll just slap you around a little bit. What the heck? Because that's, this is, he's not saying to use this as some sort of a sword, or like a weapon when somebody's going through hardship. What people need when they're going right in the, when they're smack dab in the middle of, of hardship, when they just got the news that's devastating to them, they need love, they need support, they need an ear to listen to them. And you're there just to love on them. Because a lot of times people say, well, what do I do? What do I say? Don't say anything. Just be there for them. Love on them. Now, James is teaching us this because this is only pre and post trial. This is more about pre before we go through the trials to kind of prepare us. And then post trial, when we're looking back on it, going, wait, 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 man, I, I was in too much despair through that. I need to get a grip and begin to see what Christ wants to do in my life as a result of that. So this is more pre and post trial. A healthy biblical perspective, what he's saying here is that a healthy biblical perspective will lead you to joy. Now, turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the opposite of joy is, real quick. What's the opposite of joy? Most people don't get it right, so go ahead. I've, I've taught you this for a long time, so you guys should get it right. <clears throat> so if you said the opposite of joy is, <clears throat> is sadness, the opposite of joy is sadness, you're wrong. 
And that's oftentimes what people say. They say, well, the opposite of, of joy is sadness. No, actually, it's despair. It's hopelessness. Because the Bible teaches, actually, that you can be sad and still be joy, have joy in your life. We grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves because we have joy. We have hope. We have hope in the midst of our sadness. So you are to be sad over the issues of life. There are things that you take hits. You need to grieve those losses, and yet in the midst of those, uh, those, those sad times, those grieving times, we have hope. We have joy, and that's what he's saying. And that's what he wants us to understand. If you feel hopeless about any person, thing, or circumstances because you don't have a healthy biblical perspective, is what he's saying. Count it all joy. Think out the implications. Who is God? What has he done for me? Who am I in light of God, God's work? And how should I live in light of who I am in him? Well, who's God? He's the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. What has he done for me? He sent his son to rescue me. Who am I in, in, in light of that? I'm his child. I'm a child of God. He lavishes me with his love. He's going to take care of me. He's going to protect me. He's going to provide for me. Yes. So take that and now apply it specific to where, you, where you're struggling, where you're suffering. And I'll guarantee you that when you understand that, it will be much bigger than any pain or suffering that you're facing. And if, and if it's not, it's because you're not thinking out what you have in Christ. That's why it says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Think out the implications of what you have in Jesus Christ. The greatest defense against the lies in your head is the rehearsal of God's word in your heart. And that's what you're doing. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds because you know. And he goes on through that. Now, here's the next thing. Trials are inevitable, unpredictable, and multidimensional. <clears throat> I filled in the blank for you on those because we're just going to get through them. But count it all joy, my brothers, when they're inevitable, not if, when you meet. The Greek word for meet, there is unpredictable, really. It's just, it's, uh, listen, I know that some of you like me are kind of control freaks and you're always into this preventive, I don't, I'm going to prevent all the tragedy in the world that I can prevent. But guess what? He's saying there's some tragedy you can't prevent. And it's going to come at you, and it's going to blindside you, and it's going to, uh, you're going to go, I didn't see that one coming. Exactly. That's what he's saying here. And, and that's part of it. So it's inevitable, unpredictable, and multidimensional, all the way from, from minor irritations that they didn't get my coffee right at the Desert Breeze uh, ca Cafe out there, and it really makes me mad. And I'm not even sure I'm ca I can even listen to this message right now because my coffee is so pitiful to that. Okay, that's a mild irritation. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, I understand. Take it back, and they'll make you a new one. And, uh, but you'll miss half the message if you do that. But that's part of that. That's part of that, but all the way to horrible tragedy. The diagnosis of stage 4 cancer, you got two months, three months to live. Um, or the loss of a loved one, um, you know, immediate. And then here's the next thing, trials test my faith. For you know the testing of your faith. Remember, testing is a word with connotations of smelting. Remember we talked about that, smelting, furnace. Trials are a furnace that will reveal the quality of your relationship with God. On the wall at Speed and Strength University where I work out is this placard. I, I talked about a placard that was up there last week, and here's another one that's on the wall. It's, it asks this question, are you gold or gold-plated? Trials will reveal. If you're gold in the midst of trials, that gold will shine, and you will, out of your life will come love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
But if you're gold-plated, if you're just putting on a show, that will reveal and you'll experience inordinate anxiety, anger, despair. How you feel and respond to minor irritations all the way to major crisis reveals the quality of your relationship with God. So think about this last week. How did you respond to the difficulties of life and the tough times of your life? And look back when you've gone through tragedy. Maybe even if you're going through tragedy right now, how are you responding? It's putting on display your relationship with God. Now, my wife and I did a road trip uh, up the West Coast during the sabbatical, talked about it a little bit last weekend, and just stopped at all the little beach cities along the way. It was just took our time, no time limits, had a great time. But for some reason, when we were coming out, we went all the way up to Victoria, Canada, then came through uh, Seattle, stayed a little bit in Seattle. And as we were coming out of Seattle, for some reason, and I, I think for the most part, I think we did a good job. I was trying to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life because that's one of my problems. And, um, and then I was also trying to uh, slow down enough, which, by the way, what I'm telling you here is something we should be doing every day, slow down enough to, uh, to just uh, be overwhelmed and to enjoy the mystery and the majesty of God and to just absorb that. But for some reason, after we were coming out of Seattle, I was kind of like, uh, like driving like crazy trying to get out of there. I was like, I'm gonna, I want to get, I want to get, get going because we're kind of on our way home. It's almost like a horse turned back to the, to the stall. You know what I'm saying? You take the horse out and then the horse knows you're going back to the stall and that horse is wanting to run. That's how I f- was feeling a little bit. And so we're coming out of Seattle. We just left a coffee shop in a little quaint, uh, quaint little neighborhood. The, horrible customer service. They were just really nasty. Coffee was great. Customer service was horrible. Never did like those Seattle Seahawks fans. Heavy freeway traffic. We were low on fuel, trying to find the best route to Spokane. So we're going to go over to Spokane and then Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and then work our way down. And I was doing my best to also uh, to avoid any toll roads because they, they were saying, hey, toll roads, hey, I'm not paying for a toll road. We don't do that in Arizona. I'm not paying for some goofy road, okay? I don't know why I, f- I, f- that I let that get the best of me. But uh, so Nancy is navigating and I'm driving, but she's not navigating as fast as I'm driving, okay? <laughs> any guys know what I'm talking about there? It's like uh, you were supposed to turn right back there. Well, why didn't you tell me before we got there? Okay, so it's like one of those things. And so uh, I snapped at her. And uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Pastor Ray would never do that. And I snapped at her and it closed her spirit. You guys know what a closed spirit is? She didn't talk to me for two weeks. And <laughs> that's what a closed spirit is. Actually, it wasn't that. She didn't do that. She's, her recovery, her reaction recovery time is much quicker than mine. She recovered much quicker. But basically, she did one of these numbers. She kind of turned away from me. He's like, okay. She didn't say this, but I could, I could see it on her expression. You jerk, then you figure it out. <laughs> you figure out how to get out of town, okay? You're going to put all this pressure on me, then just here, go for it. Here, here's my phone. And he, she also had that look on her face that said, said this. It's obvious you haven't spent time with Jesus because you're not acting like him at all, okay? (laughs) 
and you need to spend a little bit more time with Jesus. She didn't actually say that, but I, it was on her face. Okay, I felt the conviction, <laughs> overwhelming conviction. And, what, and so it was just kind of crazy. So we, we pulled off the road trying to avoid the toll road and got lost in a little neighborhood, kind of wandering around a little bit. And finally, we kind of figured our way out and headed down the road and we recovered. And part of maturity is reaction recovery time when you recognize it and you're able to recover. We were able to recover really well. And actually, it wasn't so bad because that was really the only big kind of blow up that we had in that whole trip when you consider all the stuff that, w that uh, we did and being on the road as long as we were. And of course, we've had 40 years to practice, okay? And so that helps. And, but this is what I, what I learned about myself during that time is that they're, they're for a moment, and, and it, it happens often, more often than I'd like to admit, that my idols are achievement, getting things done, getting there, driving, we're going to get there, even if it kills everybody. Well, <laughs> that's scary. And uh, so achievement, another idol of mine is, is money, saving money. I'm not going to spend any money that I don't have to spend. And then uh, time is also a big idol. I don't want to waste time. This is a waste of time. We're in traffic. I'm not going to go on that tow road or whatever and all that. And what I had done was I had elevated those to, the, to being my God, a good thing, into an ultimate thing. And what became below that was the glory of God and the honor of my wife. Does that make sense? And so, so those were more important at the time. We've got to get this thing done. Get going over there as you're navigating. You're not navigating fast enough. What's wrong with you? Well, that's disrespectful. It doesn't honor her, and it doesn't give glory to God. And so it, the Lord really convicted me on that, and I needed to, once again, uh, I, I need to learn to slow down enough to marvel at the majesty and the mystery of God and to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life and to rest in him and walk in him and, and his glory has got to be the ultimate in my life. And so what, what was going on? It was revealing my relationship with God and it didn't look very good, okay? It didn't look very good. Now here's the interesting thing about this whole story is that when we got home from our road trip, we had a bill in the mail for a toll road from Seattle. That's not funny. Okay, that was a little bit funny. But uh, it was just like, what the heck? I'm thinking, I tried to avoid that thing. I, I thought we had avoided it. But apparently, they take a picture of your car. They probably had us in the car, me looking over at her, and she's looking at me like, Rrr. They go, whoa, look at this couple. They're not getting along very well. So... So that was crazy. Here's the next thing. This is what will happen in your life. And this is what God's up to. Trials will produce. So trials have a purpose. They have a purpose. Trials will produce holiness and happiness in Christ if I don't give up. I've got to learn to, my reaction recovery time has to be decreased. I have to be steadfast. I have to say, wait a minute, I know this is hard, but God's going to get me through this. And God wants me to, he's putting on display my, my relationship with God. It doesn't look so good right now, so I need to Get anchored in his love. Once again, I need to come back to him. I need to spend time with him. That's that steadfastness. Holiness is character. Happiness is contentment. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Oftentimes I've heard people say, what is God up to? What is he up to in all my problems? What is he up to? Oh, wait, wait, wait. I know exactly what he's up to. I know exactly. Your holiness and your happiness in him. That's what he's up to. Okay? He's wanting to make you more like himself, and the way that you're going to do that is by finding your happiness in him, regardless of your circumstances. 
So that the more you are perfected in holiness, the more you'll be perfected in happiness. And the more you're perfected in happiness is the more you'll be perfected in holiness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. Holiness is being so happy in Jesus that sin loses its overpowering appeal and suffering loses its overwhelming effect. Steadfastness means to plant your feet and to withstand whatever comes against you. It's an attitude. You've got to have a little bit of that. He's, he's wanting us to have some attitude here, an attitude that says, I'm not going to let that person, thing, circumstance get the best of me. I want the whole world to know that Jesus is more desirable, more satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death can take away. You're wanting to put him on display, and you will. So when the heat is on, you know, what comes out of your life? What's being revealed? That's, that's what he's saying. It's revealing something, so it gives you opportunity to get back with Jesus, run into his arms so that he can change your life. Now, let me give you a quick quote before we move on to the next section here. This is from a book by Francis Chan. It's his latest book, Letters to the Church, and I wanted to read this to you because he talks about suffering here in this book. Great book. I'm on my second time through the book. I read probably uh, about seven, eight books on my sabbatical. This is one here the last week I've read a couple times. But uh, this is what he says. Becoming a Christian is a complete and total surrender of your own desires and flesh to the higher purpose of serving God's glory. That's not what, I wasn't doing that. I needed to get back to that. It means you die to yourself and put on Christ. According to Jesus, far from having no cost, following him will cost you everything. Far from promising a better life, he warned of intense suffering. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to insert this. This is not what he says, but I know that Francis Chan believes this. Whatever you give up to follow him, whatever you gain in following him is much more than what you've ever given up, okay? Even if it involves in following him suffering, because what you have in him is, is unbelievable treasure and and. and and he, he talks about that here in the book. And so he quotes Matthew 24, 9 through 13. So he says, so Jesus warned us of intense suffering. And this is one of the occasions where he did that, Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures, there's that perseverance, the one who endures to the end will be saved." And he goes on in the book and he says, Jesus warned that false teachers would come and lead many astray. This is why it is imperative all of us diligently study the words of Christ, God's word. If the above verses sound foreign to you or contrary to what you have been taught, find some new teachers. Run from any teacher who promises wealth and prosperity in this life. The call to follow Christ is the call to joyfully, listen to what he says, joyfully, count it all joy, joyfully endure suffering in this life for the promise of eternal blessing in the next. He shares a couple verses, and I end with this last part of this quote. Suffering is rarely talked about in the American church. I find this ironic because suffering is all through the New Testament. Now, 
if you were to ask, if you really look at the theology of most American Christians, they have a really poor theology of suffering. If you've been hanging out at Desert Breeze, I think that we have a really healthy theology of suffering. And, but, but James has just given us, and he's giving us a good theology of suffering. So what resources do we have? What resources do we have for trials? Here's the power the power that we need. So we've got perspective. Now we need power. This is that supernatural power working in our lives so that trials will make us and not break us. And so the gospel gives us three things. It's on your notes. The gospel gives us wisdom, wealth, and wholeness. This all has to do with the power. Wisdom, wealth, and wholeness. Wisdom. Wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. It's competency in life's realities. And notice that he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God. He gives to us generously without finding reproach. What does that mean? It's not based on your performance. We're flawed. We're messed up. So he doesn't give to us because of who we are or what we've done, but he gives to us because of who he is and what he's done. Okay, it's, it's grace. So yeah, but I'm a mess. Yeah, of course you are. Okay, and I am too. But you run into his arms and he will give you wisdom. That's what he's saying. Now, the problem with this is that as you study this, you start thinking, but yeah, what, what about this whole thing of doubt? If you want wisdom from God to help you through suffering, you must not doubt. What is doubt? Well, doubt is not, doubt is not psychological indecisiveness or uncertainty. Oftentimes when we think of that, it's like, well, yeah, but I, because we all struggle with that. Psychological indecisiveness, uncertainty, but doubt is divided loyalty. It's divided loyalty, and he gives us the definition of it there. The Greek definition is literally in verse 8 for doubt. It's double-mindedness, and double-mindedness is divided loyalty. We may say that we have undivided loyalty to God, but in reality have greater loyalty to something or someone else. So divided loyalties will keep us from persevering in trials and becoming holy and happy in Christ. What are divided loyalties? It's loving anything more than you love God. That's a divided loyalty. Making a good thing into an ultimate thing. That's divided loyalty. How do you know if you've got divided loyalty? You look at your emotional response to those things that you value in your life and how you're responding to when those things are threatened, blocked, or lost in some form or fashion. Look at your emotional response. He shows us in verse 6 and 8 what our emotional response will be if we have divided loyalty. For the one who doubts, the one who has divided loyalty, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 8, he is a double-minded man, divided loyalty, unstable in all of his ways. If you have divided loyalty, you're going to be unstable. You're going to be like the wave on the sea, tossed back and forth. Trials are going to rock your world. They're going to devastate you. You're going to be in despair. That's what he's saying. Now, if you try to get from creation, such as relationship, job, money, the list goes on, when you try to get from creation what you should be getting from the creator, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations, it will drive your life. When you seek it, it will, it will drive your life, control your life. When you get it, it will disappoint you, whatever it might be, because your heart was made for something much bigger. It was made for the creator, not for created stuff. And when you lose it, when you lose it, and that's at the center of your life, you will be devastated. 
you put all your eggs in that basket, so to speak. You, you're living for that. That's your life. That's the good life for you rather than him in relationship with him. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24 and 27, trials are inevitable and reveal whether we have built our lives on the rock or on the sand. Remember the, the kind of the parable that he gave us? And he said that all of us are building our lives on something. And he talked about really two groups of people, those that hear his words and obey him and those that hear his words and don't obey. Those that hear his words and obey are, are like those that build their life upon the rock and when the, when the storms rage, he doesn't say if the storms rage, but when the storms rage, the house is still standing because it's built upon the rock, because they have relationship with Christ. Their ultimate Loyalty and affection is towards him, and they listen to him, and they, they respond, they obey. But the person who hears his words, the person who just goes to church, checks the box, maybe they've even memorized verses, but they're not interacting with God. They don't have relationship with God. He's not their highest priority in their life, and their deepest loyalty is not to him then it, it, basically it says they're building their life on sand. And when the storms rage, they're devastated. They're devastated. And, and uh, so it really reveals whether or not your life is on rock or sand. Now, as Christians, we have experienced the greatest love of the universe. Think about that. We have experienced the greatest love of the universe. We sang a song here earlier this morning, Your Love Awakens Me. Wasn't that a great song? I mean, all of the songs were great that we sang, but that song stood out to me. Your love is greater. Your love is stronger. See, if God's love is the foundation of your life, you can handle anything. You can handle anything. One of the things that my wife and I did during the sabbatical and coming back from the sabbatical, we're making a, a, a big effort to try to, continue to have good, healthy boundaries and margin in our life so that we can continue to do that, but to keep ourselves anchored in his love. So we anchored ourselves in, in God's love. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, when you anchor yourself in God's love, when God's love is not just a concept, but a reality, this is what I found in my own life. I'm less sensitive. I'm less self-conscious. I'm less self-centered. I'm less likely to be irritable. I'm, I'm less impatient. I'm less indifferent to the needs of the people in my life. I'm, I'm really more other-centered. Why? Because I have my treasure in him. My heart is filled up with his love. Shouldn't his love, shouldn't his love be flowing out of us to the degree that it shocks the world? I mean, think about that. If we have his supernatural love, we're loved by the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. And he showed us his love by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. If you're experiencing his love regularly, oh my goodness, that should be flowing out from your, your life in, in such a way that it should almost be shocking to people. Shouldn't our response to trials and hardship and suffering be vastly different from those who don't know God? Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. But if the foundation of your life is anything other than God's love, such as the love of a person, and you lose it, you'll not be able to persevere in trials. How can it help you if that's what you're living for and you lose it? 
You become godless in the midst of your trial and your difficulty. Build your life on created things and suffering will take it from you. Build your life on the creator and suffering will drive you deeper into his love. That's why the Bible says we're talking wisdom here. So wisdom is having undivided loyalty to Christ Jesus, having him as the the priority, the passion, the pursuit of your life. And that's why it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the beginning of wisdom is undivided loyalty to Christ. Here's the next one as well. And this is interesting because he says in the context of suffering, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. What in the world is he talking about there? Anybody know? Because I don't, and I really studied hard on this, and I couldn't come with anything. You know better than that. Actually, I know. Here's what it, what it means. And, and by the way, he goes on with the rich. He says, the rich are going to lose everything anyway, eventually. And he's kind of given us an idea that if we build our lives on anything. By the way, most of us, if not all of us, are rich in here compared to the rest of the world. You guys know that, don't you? Okay, middle class people in America, oh my goodness, we're, we're unbelievably rich. So he's just saying, man, you build your life on temporal stuff, it's going to go away eventually. You're going to lose it. It's all coming down. That's what he's saying. So, so here's the point. You need to understand the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have everlasting life. So the, the gospel is not good advice at what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. You, did you get that? You need to understand that. That's pretty uh, unbelievable, and it's amazing. It's overwhelming. It makes, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion because every other religion is good advice about what you must do to be right with God. Christianity is good news about what God has done to make us right with him. He did the work. We put our faith in Jesus And so what that does is it has a way of, first of all, it it humbles us. So that's why he's talking about the rich being humbled, as he says, the rich in his humiliation. Because what it does is it levels the playing field before the cross, and it says that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die. There was no other way that we could have a right relationship with God. All the money in the world, all the good works, all of that can never achieve right standing with God, but that was given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So it has a way of humbling us. It humbles us. But what about the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Well, it also elevates us because not only does it say that you and I were so sinful Jesus had to die for us, but it also says that he loved us so much he wanted to die for us. And it elevates us. There's, a, there's an exaltation that comes to us in our humiliation when we acknowledge our sin before him. So the gospel eliminates both towering and cowering, superiority and inferiority complexes. It levels the playing field. That's why I like what C.S. Lewis says, the man who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. Okay, some of you are looking at me like, what did you just say? Because that's a, hard, that's a hard one. It took me a while to get through it, and then the more I, I really reflected deeply on that statement, it was convicting, terribly convicting, because I don't live like that, because I'm always living like happiness is one more, one achievement away, or one more thing, or whatever. I'm adding something to Jesus. And he's saying, no, no, you got Jesus? Listen to what he says. The man who has God in everything else has no more 
than he who has God alone. Jesus was asked by a, a brother, Jesus was kind of walking through the crowd, and this brother yells out to Jesus, said, Jesus, Jesus, my brother took all the inheritance. I want you to be the arbiter of our inheritance and split it up uh, between us and help us out here. And so he calls out to Jesus, and Jesus says something very profound in Luke 12, 15. And he says, who made me the arbiter, first of all? And then he says, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, desiring after the things that you don't have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He's just saying real life and real living is not about more stuff. It's not achievement, accomplishment, acquisition of more stuff. That's, that's not where life is found. See, the gospel gives us, and the point that he's making here and what we need to understand, and here's the wealth of the gospel. The gospel gives us a meaning, a hope, a happiness that all the success in this world can't give to us and all the suffering in this world can't take from us. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. So let's just take a moment and marvel at the majesty and the mystery of God. I want to read to you a quote from, from David Paul Tripp from a devotional that I read a, a few weeks ago. And uh, listen to what he says. This is his new morning mercies. It's a daily devotional. This is April the 12th. Listen to what he says. Just, just take a moment. We're almost finished. We've got one more point, and then we're, we're going to do communion here this morning. But this is what he says. If God is your Father, the Son is your Savior, and the Spirit is your indwelling helper, you have hope no matter what you're facing. If that's true, you have hope no matter what you're facing. Now, he goes on. This is what he says. We forget who we are, and when we do, we begin to give way to doubt, fear, and timidity. Identity amnesia makes you feel poor when, in fact, you are rich. It makes you feel foolish when, in fact, you are in a personal relationship with the one who is wisdom. It makes you feel unable when, in fact, you have been blessed with strength. It makes you feel alone when, in fact, since the Spirit lives inside of you, it is impossible for you to be alone. You feel unloved when, in fact, as a child of the Heavenly Father, you have been graced with eternal love. You feel like you don't measure up when, in fact, the Savior measured up on your behalf. Identity amnesia sucks the life out of your Christianity in the right here, right now moment in which all of us live. Is that good? You guys with me? Did you guys hear that? Do you take out time to marvel at the majesty and the mystery of God? If you don't, you're not going to have the wealth. You're not going to have the wealth to get you through the difficulties. So we have the wisdom is undivided loyalty, and then in that, we, we fill our minds with the beauty and the value of what we have in him. And now here's the, the last one, and this is what it's going to do to our lives. It's going to make us whole, wholeness, wholeness. Look at verse 12. That's what he's talking about. Blessed is the man, blessed, total fulfillment, complete well-being, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now, look on your notes. I've got it right there. Crown of life from MacArthur Commentary, the crown which is life, or to crown the man with life. That's the uh, Gospel Transformation Bible, ESV. So it's just saying, you're learning how to really live. This is life. Like what Jesus was saying, life does not consist in the abundance of things that we possess. There's, there's a real life. There's meaning. There's hope. There's happiness. Apart from stuff, apart from accomplishments, it's found in relationship with God. It goes back to verse 4 where he says, perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That's what he wants to do. Perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Wholeness, holiness, happiness in Christ. It's less about what we acquire, accomplish, or achieve in life, but more about who you become, character and contentment. Not that you won't accomplish and achieve and acquire things. Those, those are all okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what your life is about. Your life has a, there's a character and there's a contentment in Christ as you Behold God's glory. We become whole. That's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Frederick Nietzsche, German philosopher, 19th century, said this. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. So if you have a why, if you have a purpose, then you can deal with whatever problems and obstacles you're up against. Now, He's a very smart man, probably a whole lot smarter than, than what I am, but, um, but I, I'm, I'm only smart because I read the Bible, and the Bible gives me a lot of wisdom, and the Bible would dispute that and actually say this, and it would say, he who knows the who will have a why to be able to bear any how. I'm not giving you a technique. I'm inviting you to know the person, Christ Jesus. You need to know him. You need to encounter him. You need to spend time with him. And the more you do, the more you will be like him. Now, let me give you a, just a quick taste of where we're going next week. Verses 13 through 18, we didn't read, are an analogy of spiritual adultery. This is part of my segue. I'm going to give you a story, and then we'll do our communion here this morning, but an analogy of spiritual adultery. Verses 13 through 18, which we will be studying next week on temptation, is talking about divided loyalties. When our inordinate desires are conceived, that's what he's talking about here, these divided loyalties, when we put something as being more important than God in our lives, when they are conceived, they give birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death, is what he's talking about there. And so if a woman puts herself in the arms of a lover, the fruit of her union gives birth to a baby. So that's the analogy. If you put yourself in the arms of any other lover other than Christ, divided loyalty, the fruit of your union will be sin. Dross. The best remedy for spiritual adultery, divided loyalty, is passionate love for Jesus. Christ must become more beautiful to your imagination, more desirable and satisfying to your heart than anything else. How do you get that? Well, let me end with a story right here. Great example of perseverance. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Daniel 3, egomaniac, King Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the Babylonians, where God's people were exiles there in Babylon. He built a golden statue of himself, commanded all to bow down to him when the music plays. But there were three guys in perseverance, refused to bow down. I'm sure you're familiar with the names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they told the king, we're not bowing down. 
They stood up to him. In fact, if you want to read this, it's really great. It's a great uh, example of perseverance, Daniel 3, 16 through 18. They basically all unanimously said at the same time, I love it, they said, he can, he can save us, he will save us, and even if he doesn't save us, we're not bound down. I mean, it's good stuff. As you read that, you go, oh, yeah, that's what I want. And they have a humble confidence. Their confidence is in God, not in their limited understanding of what they think he'll do. In other words, they're saying, we're not so arrogant to believe that we know what God is up to. We don't defy you because we think we're going to live. We defy you because live or die. He is our great and good God who we adore. So, so listen, God doesn't give us grace to keep us safe, but to make us dangerous. And that's what you see in this story. And that's what God wants us to have in our lives. Steadfastness is not holding the fort, but storming the gates of hell. That's what it is, more than anything. So when King Nebuchadnezzar received the defiant response, he had the three tied up, thrown into the furnace that was turned up seven times hotter. It was so hot, remember this, it killed the soldiers who cast them in. But when the king looked into the fire that he saw, what did he see? He saw it shook him to the core of his being, and he saw them all three walking around with a fourth with a fourth man that looked like a son of the gods, as he called it. There was not a hair on their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The only thing that got burned off in the fire was the chains that bound them. So, okay, who was the, uh, who was the fourth Man in the fire with them. Yeah, it was a Christophany. It was a theophany. It was Jesus. And you'll notice that he doesn't come out of the fire. He remains in the fire. Why is that? Here's your last point. Because Jesus went through your greatest fiery furnace for you, the cross. He'll certainly be in your smaller furnaces with you, never to leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. So God, as we take communion here this morning, let us be reminded, and let it be a reminder that because Jesus went through the greatest fiery furnace for us, the cross, these elements represent the cross, your broken body and shed blood for us. And because of that, we know, we are guaranteed that he'll certainly be in our smaller furnaces with us, never to leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the wisdom, the wealth, the wholeness that the gospel gives to us to face anything with joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Three stations here.